We're happy to have David Johnson with us this morning. And, you know, George has described in the past when he's uh, filling the pulpit how, you know, when Drake tells us he's going to be away, you know, there's a what are we going to do moment in the uh, the elders meeting. And George describes as we look at the carpet and, and, uh, <laughs> and see, see what happens. That's usually how he describes it when he's de- going to preach. But, you know, he blames it on me. But I think uh, there's probably not two guys that uh, breathe a bigger sigh of collective relief was uh, George and I, when we find that, that David is coming, we, uh, we enjoy him preaching. Uh, we enjoy the opportunities we have here, but uh, it's always good to have David come. He blesses us with uh, great messages, and, and he and uh, Drake's relationship goes back to, I think, a time when Drake was in school and teaching the Bible study, that, uh, and, and he's told some of that story here, and I, I enjoyed hearing it, and, and uh, I think it's great that David loves to come to a place where the, the Word of God's proclaimed and he carries on the tradition. So we look forward to what you have for us this morning. I always enjoy the opportunity to come here. My wife, Brenda, is here uh, as she's been the last few weeks, the last few times I've been here. The uh, last time we were together was over a meal. We had the Seder meal together uh, right back here in the, uh, the is that was the event center, the gym, whatever that was. I, it was a wonderful time. Um, we'd never spent so much time over the Seder meals we did that <laughs> we did that night. It's just an example of how this church ministers to the people within, but also the outreach in the community. And I always enjoy the opportunity to be here. But Drake seems to dodge me all the time. He invites me when he's not here. Um, so I feel a little less burdened by the fact that uh, when he was here for a few times, I always felt a little uh, nervous. But uh, Drake is such a humble leader and a teacher of the word, and I'm grateful for that. Also, there's a couple of other people I need to acknowledge. Um, my men, Jacob and Caleb, uh, these guys, uh, it's amazing. I get these random texts from Barb or Drake that have been forwarded to me when those guys are following Scotty Scheffler and the PGA Tour, and we talk golf, we talk football. Um, and I look over and I see these guys, and I think, you know, what is it to grow up in this church with the way they're learning to study the Word of God, the, the order of the worship service, the structure around? Uh, they are flying against the current of what is most often now the thing to do in church, which is more around entertainment. And I just appreciate the fact that the elders of this church and the pastor of this church and the families of this church are focused on the Word of God and worshiping together uh, around a way in which honors God as the center and His Word as the center and the work of Jesus Christ is the center and the fellowship and the role of the church is the center. And now I feel the burden to open up an Old Testament book. And as, mo- as soon as Drake tells me he's going to be gone, and he says, would you mind covering, I will always say to him, Drake, here's what I'm thinking, because I want to make sure that I do a couple of things. Number one, I don't do something he's already done that I've missed, or that I'm not going to jump into something that he's got planned in the future. So I just want to be highly respectful of what the pastor is doing in in his role as a teacher. Also know that he teaches throughout the rest of the week, so I recognize there's a lot. And uh, so I always feel a little uncertain about what I should consider. Like, don't touch John right now. I love John. I love John. I love Romans. 
Um, and he's been doing Romans. So, we, so I know these things. So I picked a passage that I love out of a book that is the ugliest, darkest book in the, in the Bible, in my judgment. I've taught this book before, taught it many years ago at another church. And when I got to the end of the book, people in the class that had stayed with me through the entire book of Judges said, literally, man, I'm glad that's over. That's the most depressing book I've ever read. It ends with such a thud that you think, oh, my word, the nation has become so bad during the time of Judges. Well, what I draw this kind of maybe peculiar counsel from this book, much like Ecclesiastes, it's a book that tells us about life as it really is and doesn't make it colorful and pretty and and it just tells the truth. One of the most refreshing things about the Bible, if we read it in its entirety, is it does not present life as sanitized. It's not a beautiful nursery rhyme of a life that we're reading about. We're reading about some real broken people in a broken time, maybe even in an evil time. Everyone was doing right in their own eyes is the, the epitaph that goes all the way through at the end of the book. And you look up and you see the effects of what is it to do whatever you want to do. Don't you feel like we're somehow living that way now? It seems as if in recent years, the acceleration of the separation of people's lives from any sense of truth has gone full bore into the mainstream and many have warned us for years about this. The cultural war is a real thing. And what's not at stake is the way we used to do things versus the way somebody may want to do things now. What's really at stake is the abandonment from any standard of truth. We may apply truth differently, but at least we acknowledged it to be truth. I saw this when I was a Bible teacher at a Christian school many years ago. I'd been teaching at this one particular school for a while, and I I felt like I knew the students in my class, and I knew the families that had placed their children in the keep of this evangelical Christian school. So I am teaching the Gospel of John straight through, and I get to John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And I just ask my class, evangelical children in evangelical churches being reared by evangelical families in an evangelical Christian school. How many of you believe this is true? The exclusivity of coming to the Father only through Jesus Christ. Only 25% of my 100 students said that they believe that to be true. Back in the day, I took my chalk. There were something called blackboards back then. And I put the chalk in the tray and I walked out the door of my class. If you're a Bible teacher and you've gone that far in the Gospel of John and 75% of your class rejects the very words of Jesus, you just might feel that you haven't done your job right. I really wrestle with whether or not I can continue to be a Bible teacher. And it really hit me. And that was the moment of almost this temporary resignation where I just put it down. I didn't have anything else to say. It was just a few minutes before the bell rang, so I wasn't like, you know, walking out on my job. 
but it was one of the darkest moments as a teacher. So I backed up and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this again the next year, but I will not do it the same way. What I realized had happened from that kind of model of seminary down to the practicality of the culture in which I was now inserted was it was all up for opinion and there was no basis for what was true. So I changed my early weeks in the semester when I started the new year. And when the time I've got to the Gospel of John again, and I got to John chapter 14, verse 6, and I asked the exact same question a year later, 100% of the students said that statement by Jesus is true. The question is, what was the difference between the first and the second? And the difference was, we began a conversation that year about the very nature of truth itself. Simple things. Something can't be its opposite. That seems to have gone away. Something as simple as something cannot be its opposite has gone away. You know what that really says? There's a distinction between something that's on the right or something that's on the left. Something that is a yes versus something that is a no. And we used to say it this way. Something that was male and something that was female. Who would have thought... 10 years ago, that something can't be its opposite is actually something can be both opposites. You recognize what's happened. The shift has taken place. A is not non-A. used to be a fundamental idea. If something were to contradict itself, you threw it out. It's not true. If a premise was a false statement, you throw out the argument. If the premise had obscure language or ill-defined terms, you threw it out. There were, there were rules of logic. A logical argument had a mathematical quality to it. It had a formula attached to it. Did you know that both logic and mathematics are under attack because they're truth statements? We used to think of math as almost black and white. Something is clear. There is an answer to 2 plus 2. Or two times two. That now is considered, are you ready for this? Patriarchal, oppressive. It doesn't allow for variations. So by the time I got to the second year and I had begun to address my students in the way they were thinking about truth itself, they landed with 100% we believe that statement is true. And then someone said something which I really appreciate the distinction. One person finally raised their hand and said, yeah, but I'm really uncomfortable with it. I said, that I understand. Because the weight of that message was, if they don't know Jesus, there is no other way to the Father. And then we had a conversation about truth can be something you can say yes to and still be uncomfortable with it. Now, it's, now you feel the moral efficacy, what do you, I do with this? And for that, I appreciated the candor and the, and the honesty, that I'm struggling with it. And I think that's the thing that we have to carefully recognize the difference. So why am I saying all this at the start of Judges? Because Judges was a time in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes and moral chaos, time after time. The country is spiraling downward by the life they were living and their cultural war literally 
had people fighting with them about the disagreements. Does that make sense? My phone is all of a sudden wanting to talk to me in music. There's some Christian song just comes on. Not now. Not now. That is bizarre. Or somebody sending me a message and I don't know about it? <laughs> there was a time I remember there was a picture, and I heard this. I was, um, Oz Guinness was speaking, and I'm going to totally change now what I was about to do because I need to explain what just happened. In Oz Guinness, and this is the 80s, remember the watches that used to buzz on your wrist, the digital watch when it first came out? Do y'all remember this? You know, they had the LED light that came up, or the little diode, the little red light. And what was happening in churches is pastors would hear those watches go off. And it, just like this, very distracting. Uh, we attend Stonebriar Community Church in Frisco. Ch- Chuck Swindoll has been the pastor of there since 98 when the church was founded. And there was a time in which cell phones would go off. And Chuck did not like a cell phone going off in the service like mine just did. And immediately I thought it was yours. So I was going, we turn that off? And it was me. It wasn't, it wasn't you, but it was coming from that angle. And there's, a, there's literally Oz Guinness in uh, the early 80s was in Dallas, and he's a great Christian writer, philosopher, theologian. And he was talking about this painting of this couple. And they're, they're, they're literally farming out the, the potatoes in their field. And they pause for a moment. It's not the American couple that's the farmers, but this couple had stopped what they're doing, and they're holding on to their rakes or their hose, and their heads are bowed. And off in the distance, on the horizon, it's a dark picture, uh, but off in the horizon, there's a church building that you can barely see. You can tell it's a church. And the idea of the picture is this, that in the midst of their work, the bells of the church have gone off and they've stopped to pray to thank God for his provision. There they are working in the, in the middle of the field. And Oz Guinness made this wonderful point of saying there was a time in which God's time, the chiming of the bells of the church, interrupted man's activities. And then we recognized our, our efforts in light of God's blessing. He said, now in church services, David, man's devices go off and interrupt what God is doing. So please forgive me for that. <laughs> I told you we're in for a cultural war, right? And here we are. Let's go to Judges chapter 4. This follows Judges uh, opening where the pattern is very, very simple. You can follow it all the way through all the way the 19 chapters. And what ends up happening is the people of God disobey the Lord. And when they disobey, judgment comes. And judgment came from the surrounding peoples that had not been eliminated when Joshua led the people into the promised land. There were any number of tribes that were there, any number of other leaders, and the conflict now is established. At the end of his life, Joshua was trying to compel the people to stay faithful. Please understand, you need to obey God's word. If you do that, it will go well with you. If you don't, all these tribes that have not been removed from your life are there to test you. Have you ever wondered why there are certain things that never get taken away from you? If you're struggling with something, if there's something that's persistent, it feels like it never goes away. Think of Paul's prayer in 2 Corinthians about the thorn in the flesh that he prayed to the Lord to be removed, and God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. There's evidence, then, we can see theologically that 
There are things in our life that seem to always chronically be present. So the question is, why wouldn't God remove these things? The Bible reveals in a couple of both Old and New Testament ways, those things are tests for us, and they test our faithfulness and our trust in the Lord and trusting with him to deal with those things. I can imagine for a moment there's any number of us who could probably immediately think of something that I wish would go away. Why am I always having to deal with that? You, you with me on this one? Maybe it's an issue in your family, a child's perspective or behavior that seems to just always be there, something there's conflict in a relationship. Or maybe it's an economic circumstance. Any number of ways we've seen the economy rise and fall over the years, and some of us have been helped by it and at times hurt by it. So we see this persistence, and what we can recognize is that God is the sovereign God of the universe, and he cares for us, and the circumstance with which we find ourselves is the opportunity for us to live faithfully in light of those things. Do we trust God's word or not? That's what Joshua is compelling, at least attempting, to get the nation to stay faithful. Well, they didn't. So they disobeyed. So then God would raise up an an adversary, and that adversary would oppress them for years. In chapter 3, there's this one guy named um, Eglon. He's a Moabite. The Moabites have been a historical thorn in the flesh of the Jews, all the way through to next week's discussion when we look at Ruth, the Moabitess. They were a half-breed people. The story is salacious, how they were formed from daddy, uh, one of the, the child is the daughter of Lot through his daughter, or the son of Lot through his daughter. So as it turns out, the Moabites are a problem. Well, Eglon had been tormenting Israel for 18 years, and one guy, Ehud, finally says, I've had enough. And through a very, very tricky methodology, he walks back in, destroys Eglon. It's a gruesome story, perfect for junior high boys to read. I highly recommend it. And when you see the gruesome deliverance, and all of a sudden now it inspires all the Jews to pursue Moab and all of his generals and all of his soldiers, they wipe out and the land experiences peace. Guess what happens next? The people are disobedient again, and we begin the cycle again. This is another one of those examples. So bear with me. We're going to read quite a bit. New American Standard for me. All right? Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud had been the victor, the judge that had liberated Israel from Eglon. So that period is closed. Here we go again. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heroshim Hagiyam. Now I want you to hang on to Sisera, at least in my pronunciation. He's going to be key to the story. He is the man who is working for a king. He's the general, and he is powerful. So he's this big adversary in the story. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Remember that chronic thing that never goes away? Sisera, 900 chariots, torments the land. 
How many of you have ever left something you just had enough of and you walked away and said, I'm done with this job. I'm done with this experience. I'm, 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 I've had enough. I find it's, it's pretty strong that the people of God who are faithful will leave churches that are unfaithful to his word, but it's still a hard decision to make. My wife and I have made moves or we've left circumstances that were difficult for us because when you've invested yourself in something, you feel such a commitment to what you invested, it's not easy to walk away from that. But you have this internal struggle with it. You ever left a job after many, many years because you just felt like it wasn't appropriate for you to continue to do that? In other words, how do you go about making changes when you know things aren't the way they ought to be? Well, in this particular case, Sisera is tormenting Israel for 20 years. It appears to be that people have grown just, I'll just accept what it is. They've grown somewhat indifferent to this torment. He was oppressive. 900 chariots enforced his rule. I can only imagine that some of the men had considered that maybe we should fight back. 900 chariots would tell you no. You with me on this one? So what do God's people do with the chronic experience of an oppressive, anti-God leader who's over the entire region that was the promised land? The land of milk and honey. Where's Joshua now? Where's our captain? Where's our general? Who's going to be next? Who's going to be the judge that raises, that God raises up and will do for us what we need him to do? You with me on this expectation? Is that okay? Let me ask you this. What if no one comes? There's a, there's a Sam Beckett play called Waiting on Godet. Sam Beckett is an unbeliever. Was. Sam Beckett wrote a play, Waiting on Godet. And through the entire play, there's a conversation while they're waiting on Godet. And guess what happens? In the play, Godet never shows up. You know why? Because what Sam Beckett is saying, Godet is God, and God doesn't exist. So he never shows up. So life is a lot of talking about Godet, but he doesn't exist, and he's not going to show up. So it's a real strong statement that you, you're talking about something as if someone really exists and they're going to do something for you, but neither of that is true. So it's a real slam against Christianity, from my understanding. So what about us? What if we're in a moment and we're struggling with the circumstance of the life in which we find ourselves and we don't like it and we, do we wait for someone to show up? Or do we do something? And if we are to do something, what's the basis for our action? And what are the steps that happen that would say this will overturn the oppressiveness of really caused by our disobedience? So what would that require? Obedience. But second of all, it calls for action. And that action in this particular setting would be violent. Or will it be? So I've wondered, if I could be fair, one of the things I've always enjoyed about being at Terrell Bible Church is being where Drake has been. But what I've really grown to enjoy is the conversations that I've had with many of you. 
hearing what you care about and what your focus is. The word of God matters to you. What God says matters to you. And insofar as I can tell, you actually are serious about responding to what God's word says. And if that's the case, everything's different. You're so much unlike your culture. You're so anti-cultural. Praise God. But how does it come to you, and what do you do with it? Let me offer you this story is a little bit shocking. Not that they would spiral downward into disobedience and judgment and suffering, but look what God is about to do, and it's going to really make some of you uncomfortable. Let's admit it. But you don't know what I mean by that yet. So let's look. So, verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Now, here's where some of you may grow uncomfortable. One verse, two jobs. I mentioned to Drake, Drake, I'd like to do a study, two-week study on two couples. The first couple is Deborah and Barak. And the second couple next week will be Ruth and Boaz. And how these two separate couples had a hand in the salvation history of the world. Different times, different circumstances, different relationship. One's in a time of war, this one. Deborah and Barak, and the other is in a time of peace. If you know anything about the Greek uh, Homer, the writer Homer, he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, war and peace. And there's good reason to believe that this is time, almost the same ideas around this notion of our human story shares the notion of warfare and this idea of tranquil, almost pastoral life that people spend most of their life in. We're not always at war, but we are always in the moment of recognizing how do we live our life in these areas like a farm, for example, as we'll see next week with Boaz and Ruth. The moment I mentioned, hey, Drake, I think I want to do Deborah and, and, uh, and Barak. And you know what he first said to me? I think he was tongue-in-cheek, but I also think he's like, uh, David, you're not advocating for female pastors, are you? <laughs> and I said, no, but I like your question. Because here's the issue that I want to put right in front of us. God raised up a woman to lead Israel at this time in its history. Now, I don't know where this lands for some of you. I think the Bible is really clear both in the Old and the New Testament that the patriarchs all the way through to the kings, all the way through to the prophets, have been faithful to God's word. And the structure that we're losing is the distinction between a male and a female and the roles in which we operate straight out of Genesis 1, Genesis 2. The foundation for that informs Jesus, not that he doesn't, let me make sure, informs Jesus' teaching in the Gospels and in Paul and in Peter, the distinctiveness is the same all the way through. God created man, man, male, and female. And the two of them are equals before God in their person. There is a distinction before God in their roles. And we see that throughout the New Testament 
in the way in which the leadership of the church is established. Are we okay with that? If you want a little further explanation, if I'm not orthodox enough for you, we can talk afterwards. I will assure you, Drake and I have not conspired, but we agree. So I'm holding to that. And yet, I read this text that says she was a prophetess and a judge. Now, there is tension in this culture that exists between men and women in the ignominious experience of what a woman would do to a man was offensive to certain kinds of men. Let me illustrate this if I can. I'm going to make this tense for just a moment. Will you turn with me to Judges chapter 9? Later on, there's another judge. His name is Abimelech, and Abimelech is really disobedient to the Lord. I want you to go to the end of chapter 9. And Abimelech, look down, if you will, to verse 50. New American Standard, again, I'm reading. It's a little different. You'll need to translate. So Abimelech is angry. He's trying to attack. He's in disobedience to the Lord. Then Abimelech went to Tebez, and he camped against Tebez and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in. And they went up on the roof of the tower. Earlier, he had done this exact same thing and brought the tower down and wiped out everybody in the city. Not this time. So Abimelech came to the tower, verse 52, fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But notice this. It always is interesting when the sentence opens with but, and it does here in 53. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. She dropped a big old rock on his head. Down goes Abimelech. But he's not dead yet. He's got just enough sense to recognize what happened to him. Watch what he says. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me. Lest it be said of me, a woman slew him. How bad can it get that this leader was killed by a woman? How bad was his death? So rather than be killed by a woman, he says to a young man holding his weapons, kill me. I don't want her to get the credit. Why is that? From that man's perspective, women are beneath him. And he doesn't want any association with the fact that she's the one responsible for his ending. That's the worst thing that could happen. Well, I think there's more to say than the worst thing that can happen, but that's his frame of reference. You with me on this one? So the young man pierced him through and he died. So Abimelech, it says more about Abimelech and his attitude about his arrogance and his pride that he would feel that way about his death at the hands of a woman. But there's an element around which that's true. The other question I want to raise, if I might, is that in the history of human experience, both exterior, or excuse me, extra-biblical and biblical, even in the book of 1 Samuel, there are moments when men approach women and seek their counsel. And a woman's counsel is the right thing for the man to seek. 
Let me give you an example. You're familiar with King David. King David seeks to get tribute from a man named Nabal. Nabal happens to be married to a woman named Abigail. And Nabal kind of does this to David. Like, I'm not going to give you tribute, and it infuriates David. It's a really fleshly moment by him. He's ready to go kill Nabal. And off he goes with his valiant soldiers to do so. And Abigail comes out to David and says, do not do this. You do not need the blood of my foolish husband. His name meant fool, by the way. You do not need the blood of my foolish husband on your hands. Don't kill him. And you know what David does? He listens. He sought Abigail's counsel as trustworthy and on his behalf. He listened to Abigail and doesn't do it. Abigail goes home and tells her husband, I just saved your life. David's ready to kill you. You know what happens to uh, Nabal? Has a heart attack and dies. So it turns out this pivotal history moment in David's life, he listened to Abigail and he did the right thing. She offered him wise and godly counsel. By contrast, Saul, when he recognizes he was losing his kingdom, he goes to a woman to seek her counsel. Do you remember who he went to seek counsel for? Some of you are mouthing it, the witch at Endor. May I propose this really important contrast between these two men? David listens to the voice of Abigail, and Abigail's counsel is godly. Saul, in his fleshliness, seeks another woman and seeks her counsel. What does he want from the witch at Endor? To bring back Samuel. Now, what's shocking to me is it scared the witch to death. Number one, nobody's supposed to go to her anymore because it had been banned by God, as it should have been. But the irony of the story is when he goes to the witch at Endor and the witch conjures up, which she doesn't think it's going to work because Samuel shows up. Scared the witch to death, which tells me she's a fraud anyway. You ever seen those posters that advertise for ESP people? Not ESPN, guys. Don't go there. It's not ESPN. There used to be something called ESP, people that could read the future. But they post posters of when they're going to have their events. That seems no, that's nonsensical. If you're an ESP person and you know the future, you don't need a poster to tell you when they're meeting. You just show up because you knew it. <laughs> Never mind. It's a subtle bad joke. All right. I want to propose another thing about the power of a woman's counsel in the life of a man. How many times have we looked at world history and even some of our greatest movies and recognized that it was the counsel of a woman that destroyed the pride of man and she would call him to his calling or his, his job or his role and he wouldn't listen to anybody else but her. It's called historically and in other literature a vision guide and it's typically personified as a woman who is going to be listened to by a man. It may make you uncomfortable for me to talk like this, but I want you to recognize it just for in your own life. Did your mother ever impress you and break your pride, man? Did she ever confront you about who you were and whose you were? You learned from your mother that the power of a godly woman can set the destiny of the child. 
we okay with that? That's the power of a, of a mother. I've studied a lot of great athletes. I was a coach for a number of years, scouted for a number of years, so I care about athletics a lot. And one of the things that impressed me the most about the common theme, a lot of the great athletes, it was their mothers who inspired their competitiveness. You expect it from their dads, but usually it was just a couple of bull elephants banging horns against each other, and they just fought in their pride. But when mom tells you you ought to do it, you go, wow, mom's busting my chops. You know what I'm saying? Isn't that crazy to think about? Moms, let me just tell you, your voice is probably in the early stages of life the most important voice in anyone's development, boy or girl. You know that. It's been said we learn from our mother our character and from our dads our destiny. I remember when I was 12, and I told my mother I need to go live with my father. They had divorced. I didn't like the circumstance of my mom's remarriage. And my father, whom I sought his permission to do that, he said, you need to tell your mom. So I went to my mom, and I said, I need to move out. I was 12. What did I know? But I remember in my head thinking, what I need now in my relationship and my development is dad. I had no idea of the psychology of that. I had no idea of, there was nothing spiritual in our family about any of this sort of thing. But it was a very difficult transition for me, but it, it left me thinking. In the development of a man through the boyhood years, what role does each parent have? And it continues throughout. Three weeks ago, or actually it's a month ago, my father passed away at 81. His wife, I never did feel comfortable calling her my stepmother, but his wife asked me to write the obituary. Now I've got to reflect over my father's life and put words to that that somehow reflect what mattered to him. Then I put together the slideshow, many of the pictures that I took to put in the slideshow I'd never seen before, including the day he married my, his wife, my stepmother. Never, I wasn't invited, and it was kind of an afterthought that they did it. And then I just looked at this thinking, I'm not a child anymore. But the biblical command for me to honor my father and my mother is still true in my life. My mother died in 01. I mean, in 02, excuse me. My father just did. How do I, as a son, obey God when it comes to honor your father and your mother? That's a lifetime, and it's not for children. It's for adults, too. So when I look back at these moments of my own development and my struggling, did I listen to the right person for the right reasons? Did I seek counsel from the right person for the right reasons? That's the sort of dynamic that I think any of us are, would wrestle with. But the question is, is, is human counsel really that trustworthy, whether it's from a male or a female? Does it really matter? She was a prophetess. You know what a prophetess would do? She'd call you to the word of God. She was not a priest. She wasn't a teacher in that regard. The other thing she was was a judge. There's another woman later on in 1 Samuel that was literally a wise woman in the city, and they came to her to get counsel because she was so wise and loving. By the way, years later, Solomon would write the book of Proverbs, and you know what wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs? As a woman. Why? Why is wisdom personified in the feminine? I think there's that element, back to what I said a moment ago, that somehow a woman's ability to tell the truth 
to the most arrogant and proud people somehow strips us or disarms us of our pride that we listen. Is that okay? Well, I'm trying to get over, as you might imagine, what about Deborah? But it gets even trickier. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she went and summoned Barak. I want to do a couple of name things here. For those of you who are students of the word of God, always kind of just check to see what the names mean. Deborah, for example, means bee. B-E-E, as in honey bee. Barak, the son of Abinanoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Nephtali and the sons of Zebulun. By the way, verse 6 is the turning point in the story. Because what is Deborah doing to this man she's calling to go do? She's telling him what God has commanded. How long have they been under the torment of Sisera? 20 years. For 20 years, they've endured this torment and this oppression. And now the word of God has appeared. And the word of God is a command. The Lord God of Israel has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you how many men? 10,000 men. How many chariots does Sisera have? 900 chariots. Usually a chariot had two riders. So there's 18, I've done the math, I figured this one out. 1,800 men of Sisera's army and 900 chariots against 10,000 foot soldiers. Now the question is, what does the name Barak mean? I'm here to tell you. Lightning. Lightning. Why does that matter? Lightning strikes fast. What has Barak been doing for 20 years? It seems to me not what he should have been doing. So time is up. He is called by a woman, a prophetess and a judge, raised up by God in this particular time period to call him to his destiny. You should be as swift as lightning. The promise continues, verse 7. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. That sounds like if you show up and do what I say, the outcome is certain. Is that what it sounds like? If you do this, I'll do this. But it's not an if. I'm commanding you, when you do this, this will happen. What would you expect a commander whose name means lightning to do? Strike. That's what you would expect. For those of you who have read the book, you're not surprised at what happens next. Then Barak, Mr. Lightning, said to her, the honeybee, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I'm just going to ask, don't answer, but I hope you will think about 
What do you make of a man who conditionalizes his obedience to God's calling? What do you make of a man who evidently has endured the oppression for 20 years? And now is an opportunity to do something, and he makes it about another person. He won't go without someone else. What do you do with that? I want to offer up two different perspectives, and then we'll move quickly through the rest of the story. The first perspective is there is a way to see the world that is very spiritual. And I don't mean that in some weird way. I mean the truth of God as it's revealed, we get to meet. Are you ready for this? The God of the universe who created us, who's called us, who's redeemed us, and he has put us into the world in which we're living to do his work. And we see everything that way. We live in a natural world, but we see things from a spiritual perspective, and we take this book, these words, and the reality of a relationship with God, and we act out these spiritual truths into the life in which we're living. That's called faith. The things unseen, we act accordingly. The book of Hebrews is clear about what faith is. So when we see something in our spiritual understanding and we act on those things to be true, amazing what happens in the physical world. And we don't leverage. We don't negotiate. Or do we? And the answer is sometimes we do. You know what Barak is doing? He's doing a math problem. I got 10,000 men. He's got 900 chariots. I'm going to need some help here. I need, I need somebody to go with me. I need to negotiate an alliance. Recently, there was a group of people who recognized that their work had come to an end. And they had heard that there was another opportunity. There were eight of them. And they had heard there's another opportunity. But the problem was there was no certainty at all. They needed to make a decision irregardless of any hope or promise from anyone else. And they sought some counsel before they made the decision. The counsel was, you got to go by faith. It's great counsel. So those eight people made the decision without any promise. Nothing. They got up and walked away and left their jobs. What do we typically do is we want certainty. We want a safe transition. We want to make sure that we have the money necessary to the next thing we do. We start doing the math. It's reasonable. And all of a sudden, it's very easy to become, can I say it, worldly in our decision making. I'll trust God if. I'll obey God if. And if that doesn't happen, I'm not doing it. He's negotiating not just with Deborah, but ultimately Barak, this man of lightning, is not leaving his place until he has a promise from someone. That's the tension that this story unveils. Not that Deborah was a prophetess or a judge. The tension at the center of this is Barak, who's been called 
to obey God pauses. He's been indifferent in his history. And when the moment comes and the opportunity is presented and the certainty is delivered, he still is negotiating terms. Can I just tell you straight? I've been just as guilty. You ever needed some proof that what you heard is true before you acted? In chapter 6, just two after this one, we'll see Gideon do the same thing. He doesn't believe the voice. He's the smallest guy in the smallest tribe, and he's surrounded by all these oppressors. And God shows up, and he calls him valiant warrior. And surely Gideon's looking around going, who are you talking to? Have you not seen the world in which we're living? I'm calling you to fight. I'll be with you. Well, can you, can you make the fleece wet one day? Okay, good, thanks. Can you do it again but reverse it the next day? Okay, good, thanks. All right, I'll go. By the way, that's not counsel. Don't look for a sign. Look to the word of God and respond in faith. The one thing I want to make sure we're really clear on, faith does not consider the outcome. Because you don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know how it's going to turn out. Do not make decisions on a calculated outcome. You will not be faithful to the word of God if you do that. This is not easy. This is for adults. But if we get so adult-like that we make wise decisions, we're not the children of faith. You with me on this one? I want business people who do the math. I want business builders to do the math and build great companies so you can employ the people you've employed in your experience. Do it. That's a business plan. You ought to do it. But if you recognize you really don't know what God's going to do with your heart and your business and how he's going to bless you, you cannot calculate. You cannot calculate the abundant outcome that God will bring you. But the moment we start making decisions on the basis of an outcome, we will not live faithfully the way we should and can. It's in front of us. That's what Barak is doing. Well, there's this immense response by Deborah. It's that sweetness that attends her personality that I'm trying to at least illustrate some version of. Verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kaddish. Well, this is an interesting plot twist. Yeah, I'll go with you, Barak, but the final outcome will be beyond you, for which ultimately you're not responsible. We doing okay? 
We're going to go fast now because now the story. This was just preamble, but I'll be finished quicker than you would hope. Watch this. Because remember, it's about lightning. Here we go. And Barak called Zebulun, assume, Zebulun and Tephli together to Kaddish, and 10,000 men went up with him. I want you to notice the phrases up, 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 up. Okay? Deborah also went up with him because they're going to go up a mountain called Tabor or Tabor. Now, over on the other side of the valley, there's another person that we need to be introduced to, and this is the parenthetical of this particular passage, verse 11. Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab and the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak. Notice there's a palm tree and there's an oak. You know, in a desert place, trees matter. So that's what they are focused on. These are also landmarks. Turn-by-turn navigation used to be oaks and palms. Today, it's your GPS. But back in the day, that's how they did it. The oak was in Zenamim, which is in the near Kadesh. Then they told, evidently this is Haber the Kenite and his tribes, told Sisera that Barak the son of Abinanoam had gone up to Mount Tabor. So where has Barak gone? To the top of a mountain, a strategic point in the valley. Listen to me now. For those of you who care about literature, Barak has gone to the top of a mountain with his 10,000. And Sisera called together all his chariots. 900 iron chariots. How many times has he said this in this writing? He's making an emphasis. The odds are against you. 900 chariots. And they're not just chariots. They are iron chariots. By the way, iron. The, myth, the mythology attached to this passage is beyond discussion at this particular hour. Maybe we'll do it again. And all the people who were with him from Harasheth, Hagaim, to the river of Kishon, and Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following. Can you please picture this? They've been going up, 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 up. And now what? Deborah calls out, arise. Today is the day. And what does he do? He goes down the mountain to attack Sisera. Chariots don't go up mountains, in case you're wondering. The strategic advantage of having Barak at the top of Mount Tabor is significant and down here, near this river called the Kishon River, are 900 chariots. Deborah calls out, attack. And guess what happens? Down the mountain comes lightning. Picture that, if you will, in your mind, in literary fashion. Lightning has struck from the height. And when lightning strikes down the mountain in pursuit of these 900 chariots... Guess what God did? Uncalculable, unknown, unexpected. We don't see it in chapter 4. We see it in the song in chapter 5. After the victory, like David did in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, after a victory, he sang a song. There is a song that Deborah and Barak do afterward. This is a music video, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and in the music video... Unbeknownst to us in chapter 4, which is part of the allure of the story, there's more going on than we know. 
And the turning point is amazing. It's amazing, this turning point. While Barak, lightning, is coming down the mountain and striking the camp of the 900 iron chariots, a thunderstorm breaks out. Now the picture is even stronger. A massive storm has been unleashed by God himself. And guess what happens? His lightning comes flying down the mountain and crashes into, are you ready for this? 900 chariots stuck in the mud of the flood of the river Kishon. This is a flash flood sent by God to create a quagmire that neutralized 900 chariots. And guess now what they're doing. 900 charioteers aren't ready for a hand-to-hand combat with 10,000 soldiers of the Lord. So you know what they do? They run like a bunch of little boys. And they run into the arms of a woman. This conflict of 900 iron chariots and two world powers, one of the material world and the other of the spiritual world, have now come into conflict. And all it comes down to, are you ready for this, is two people. A man and a woman. So, verse 15, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all of his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. This is one of the funniest scenes in all of my reading of the Bible. I just wonder what kind of speed he had. He ran fast enough to get caught. So Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harashith, Haggaim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Well, there was one. Now Sisera fled away on the foot to the tent of Jael. Up oh, here's another woman, the wife of Haber the Kenite, who had told Sisera they're coming. So he's somewhat of an alliance. For there was peace between Jabim, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera in his running and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. (laughs) He's running. (laughs) He's scared to death. And she said, Hey, come here. I got you covered. Don't be afraid. This This is an amazing scene. So he's running in the direction of his ally. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He just left a chariot, and you're hiding in the tent of a woman under a carpet. You big chicken. Here's what's ironic about this. What does Jael's name mean? Deborah was B. Barak was lightning. What about Jael? Goat. She's named after a goat. That's the weirdest thing ever. What family would name their daughter Goat? One that I know of right here. But here's where the story starts to be full of intrigue. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am famished or thirsty. So she opened a bottle. I didn't know there were bottles back then, but it says she opened a bottle of milk. 
and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. And he said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent. In other words, give me something to drink and guard me. And it shall be that anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here? Then you shall say, no, now lie for me. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. What a gruesome ending. What a lovely story. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, you get a feeling now that Barak is actually acting like lightning. You get the sense that he is dazzling in his speed, pursuing. He is hot for the chase. And Barak pursued Sisera. Jael came out to meet him and says, come in, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her and behold, Sisera was laying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabim, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabim, the king of Israel, until they had destroyed Jabim, the king. I've said Israel, but I meant Canaan, and they destroyed him too. This is an improbable ending. This is an un- unbelievable calculative. You cannot calculate this ending. How can you reduce 900 iron chariots to a scared guy and a woman with a tent peg and a bottle of milk? I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. May I just be really blunt and to the point, maybe like that tent peg? God has created you for a purpose. He's whispered into your ear your calling. And there may be an indifference that you've been living in that's inconsistent with what he's created you to do. There may be some fear in your life and that pause that you've been debating and negotiating, somehow you need somebody to kind of go with you and go along with you until you finally come into your calling. God will capitulate as Deborah capitulated to help Barak. But what could have been done sooner There is no way in the world Barak and his 10,000 men could have calculated, could have calculated the way this story would end. They had not calculated a thunderstorm in the story. May I say the obvious? If you go in faith, you don't have the answers. But you, can I say it? If he's called you to it and he's commanded you to it, he'll show up. God will show up in your life, Jacob. Caleb, he will show up in your life. Trust him. Do it early. Do it late. Because it's an all-the-time thing. It's not for children. It's for all of us at any time. Are you good for that? Have you been waiting? Have you been pausing? Have you been negotiating? Don't. My urgent call is if you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't know the spiritual world with which I'm talking, he is the only way to the Father, John 14, 6. You know why he's the only way? Because he's the only one who reveals the Father and died for sin, that we might be reconciled to him, trusting. Come to Christ if you don't know him. 
And if you do know him, trusting the same way now in your life circumstance, don't outgrow with your wisdom and logic the faith that transforms. I urge you, trust him again. Begin again. And then suddenly you'll live in the destiny of your calling. His name was lightning, and he paused. He needed a nudge. The source didn't matter. She, Deborah, was faithful. Don't let a bias of a cultural moment destroy God's word to you. You'll know the difference. The Holy Spirit will inform you accurately and truthfully. Don't pause. Go. And then expect that God will do things you cannot calculate. Are you all up for that? You good for that? I'm done. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. This amazing story, how you has been put into a book called Judges, but we recognize, Father, it's in the human history of the stories that people were trying so desperately to figure out what is it to live faithfully in a troubled time, a dark time. But, Father, this is a reminder to us that your word shows up, and if we would hear it and respond to it in faith, then we can trust you. You will do things we cannot calculate. And when you do it, you get the glory. We get to participate in it. And for that, we're grateful. Father, I love Drake and Barb. Thank you for their faithful service to this church, for these elders, the people who serve here. What a blessing of community of faith. So grateful for them. Father, I ask the blessing of your presence your teaching, your spirit to encourage this congregation, these brothers and sisters, these members of the body of Christ. Father, I pray that we would have uh, the, the blessed opportunity to return again next week and explore what is it to be faithful in these days. And we would rejoice that we can trust you as our God. We can come to you through Jesus Christ. And we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out your calling in our life. Father, help us in our unbelief, even as Peter said. And Father, at the same time, I pray that we would just be um, awake and alert to the fact that you surprise us with your goodness, your grace, and your unexpected uh, deliverance. We live that every day, Father, I pray in the name of Christ.